Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. For those who don't know, I'm I'm Mita. So I've been working as the podcast assistant here with Floors Rising. And I'm kind of new to the I'm well, very new to the NFT space. So I'm excited to be able to kind of get more into it and discuss some more ideas and just really pick your your brains about this. When I'm trying to log into and like get going with everything, one of the things that comes up is just like, well, what websites should I be using for for references, right? So I see Rarity Sniper and Rarible and these kind of things. And and so I wondered how much do you guys use these sites or do you find them helpful? So, so sites like Rarity Sniper is a site for usually for 10K generative projects. And what they do is they rank the rarity of each individual NFT in a set, right? So if a particular trait is more rare, that would you know signal a higher score on Rarity Sniper. And Rarity Sniper is just one of many, many sites that do kind of rarity ranking, um, rarity attribution. Do I use it? No. I think that what the genesis of Rarity Sniper is, is that they try to sort of data analyze something that was pretty fuzzy and give people a better sense of what their NFT is worth. I personally think that if you can't determine what your NFT is worth relatively within that connection, uh, within your collection. So for example, if you own a CryptoPunk and you don't know what that CryptoPunk is valued comparing to the rest of the CryptoPunks and you need to look it up on a rarity sniper, you probably just don't know enough about that project to spend money on it. Essentially. Right, right. Um, so, so, so that's the way I look at it. I think the rarity trait parameter analysis is useful for a pretty objective, I, I would say, comparison of projects within, say, a 10K project. Sorry, uh, of individual NFTs within, say, a 10K project. And so that that's basically a kind of ranking that's internal to that project. And I think that makes sense because by definition, a rarity is defined in relation to everything else. So for example, the, the punks that have the purple hair or the shades or the beanie and all that, like that's quite straightforward. Let me, let me disagree with Kizula. <laughs> First question. I don't think sites like Rarity Sniper or sort of trait ranking are objective. I think they're very subjective because they have to preference traits against each other. Here's an example. We'll use CryptoPunks as an example. A lot of these sites do one of two things. One is that they assume that every single trait is equally valued or they preference some traits over others. So using CryptoPunks as an example, there are 88 zombie punks. There are 44 beanie punks. Zombies on the whole are worth 4x what a beanie punks are worth. However, there's twice as many zombies as beanies. Now, rarity sniper or other rarity rankers would either treat every single trait the same, in which case a beanie would be rarer than a zombie, or they would have to sort of privilege or privilege a zombie over a beanie in a, in a kind of an arbitrary way to account for the 
sort of valuation difference. Either way, whether they privilege it or they don't privilege it, it's not an objective thing. It becomes very subjective. And, and this occurs across every single project. So I would say just the use of these things are is very problematic. You'd have to look at what the business model of those sites are, right? So yeah. to get your project listed on, on things like Rarity Sniper, it usually costs somewhere between one Ethereum and two Ethereum, right? So there's a there's, oh. a, there's a listing fee. Yeah, so, I didn't realize that. That actually already changes kind of everything, just knowing that, you know what I mean? Do you have any other like sources that you would recommend for people starting out that would be you know, that are educational and understanding just like the ground floor of everything and like what projects are, are getting big or like which ones, or is it really just a matter of, of again, just kind of putting in that time and scrolling through and finding projects that you think are, you know, have a good community and are like the, you know, the technology behind it is, is up to date and everything. I personally don't use any websites. Um, there are a lot of websites out there because, you know, NFTs have boomed over the past 12 months and many, many sites have come up. I mean, the only site I would really recommend is floysrising.com. But in terms of, you know, how to get information on sort of projects to look at, I think by far the best way is to look at wallets, you know, and you start with a project, you know, that you're interested in or a project that you own or a blue chip project that is very Noticeable. So let, let's let's just take an example, sort of the bluest of blue chip projects, which is like CryptoPunks. Right? Mm-hmm. So a very good way to do it is to look at the wallets that contain CryptoPunks, uh, to examine those wallets on a marketplace like OpenSea and have a look at what other NFTs those wallets have. And so essentially, you know, what what you're getting an insight into is, is what other NFTs does a CryptoPunk collector buy? And by this, you'll, you know, once you've gone through a few wallets, you'll start to see some patterns. You'll start to see some, some transactions in them, which you can also view on OpenSea. And just, you know, by this kind of very granular examination of what people's actual activities are, is I think far more useful than I think what is recommended most, which is you go and follow influencers on, on Twitter. Because, but but I think you know what people on on Twitter tweet is far less substantial than what's actually in people's wallets. Because 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 kind of money money talk essentially. So that's that that's the best thing I can suggest. I kind of wanted to see if you had like if you could maybe break down out of the main ones, you know, like. OpenSea Foundation or all of these, like they they all kind of are trading on Ethereum mostly. And like, is there a big distinction between any of them or is it just kind of like there's just, you know, options or could you maybe give me like a plus and a minus for each of the main marketplaces? Like I know, like if we're talking about like that's kind of distinct and it has its own thing, but among the other ones, they all seem fairly similar to me. So if you, I don't know if you have any, anything to say about those. We need to break marketplaces down into several categories. So the two major categories are primary sale marketplaces versus secondary sale marketplaces. So primary sale marketplaces are things like Super Rare, Nifty Gateway, Foundation, Async Art, 88, The New uh, New World. What else? I'm, I'm, I'm missing other stuff. But, you know, what they have in common is that you buy directly from the artist. So the artist would mint a particular piece and then you would buy directly from the artist, either via a listing or, or an auction. 
OpenSea and Rarible, on the other hand, and Zora are secondary sale marketplaces. So they're a place where after the artist has sold their particular piece that you would then buy from other collectors on the secondary market. They all have sort of primary marketing capabilities, OpenSea and Rarible and Zora, they all do, but by and large, they are secondary sale uh, marketplaces. So you're collecting from, from other collectors. That would be the major difference between between the two types of marketplaces on Ethereum. Kick at Nunk is on a completely different blockchain. So instead of being on Ethereum, Hick at Nunk is on, well, what was formerly Hick at Nunk was on Tezos. And Hick at Nunk was both a primary sale and also a secondary sale marketplace as well. But the, but the main difference is that it's on, it's on Tezos. Now, I can guarantee that every single blockchain has an NFT marketplace. So Solana would have their own um, NFT marketplaces. Terra would have their own NFT marketplaces. Um, ICP, sort of Definity would have their own marketplace. So every single blockchain would have it. And, you know, that, that would just be part of, you know, what it means to be a blockchain. You have an NFT ecosystem. But primarily, I think for, for NFTs, the, the major marketplace is on Ethereum and then, you know, I would say coming second is probably is probably Tezos. That would be kind of the second place. Marquez and everyone else is kind of, well, I mean, Solana is, is kind of there, but everyone else is kind of far behind. For maybe listeners who come from the traditional art world or are familiar with the format of um, exhibitions, art fairs, uh, you know, shows in, in meat space, so to speak, that maybe... It's, it's, well, I think it's, as Saber mentioned, there's a sense in which there's a lot of similarity or overlap between the main primary marketplaces or even the secondary ones, actually. And, and that one way that actually I was, or, or one additional way to get into it, I think, is to explore what are not the marketplaces, but the so-called gallery sites, where basically the format is pretty much you know, an online exhibition or, you know, Art Basel did the online viewing rooms. It's, it's basically analogous to an exhibition where uh, a curator comes in and there's, you know, there's works by 8, 10, 15 artists according to a theme, whether it's pixel art or, or whatever. And I think that may help some people to get into it because it's organized in a different way, or rather it's, it's organized in a way that's that's similar to a traditional art exhibition. So for well, one of the ones that I really like actually, and I think Kenny Schachter as well mentioned it, was um, feralfile.com. And they basically have, you know, they have thematic exhibitions. They, they actually do have a lot of OG artists that are on it, but, you know, selected works. It's not a, like a whole series. You don't really get a sense of, say, the scope of a project in, in the same way as if, if you looked at a specific project that was a 10K project, for example. Um, but, you know, it, it might kind of resonate with traditional art people in a way that would allow them to explore it in a more efficient manner, I guess. We have artists like Tyler Hobbs, uh, Rafik Anadol, very, very OG artists. Um, I think they also have Mar Mario Klingerman, who we just interviewed uh, last night, actually, um, as part of his Bado project. But so I, I think like sites like Ferrofile actually are another way to explore the marketplace without actually going to a marketplace, so to speak. So if they're listed on Ferrofile, is that where you would buy it through? Or like, are you able as an artist to list a work? 
can it be in multiple sites or is that a copyright issue? Like, do you kind of have to pick, like, like put it on one and I guess let's, sorry, let me uh, think about this. So say if you have a, a work up on Feral file, is that necessarily minted already? NFT is is not tied to a marketplace. A marketplace is a uh, is a way to sort of interact with the NFT, but the but a, but a singular NFT is never exclusive to any marketplace, uh, or should not be. Um, it's not quite true, but for the purpose of, the, of this interview, we'll, we'll say that NFT is kind of global and can interact with any marketplace. But the order book for an NFT, what the price an NFT is listed at, could and at this point in time mostly are tied to the marketplace. So mm-hmm. what this means is that it is possible that an NFT, the same NFT, the exact same NFT could be listed at different prices on different marketplaces. That is very possible. And so going back to my story, one of the first NFTs I purchased, I purchased on, on Super Rare. But when I looked at the his, history of this NFT on OpenSea, I discovered that it was actually listed at a much cheaper price on OpenSea than it was on SuperRare. So I actually overpaid for this particular NFT <laughs> because I bought it on SuperRare, whereas I could have bought this exact same NFT for cheaper on OpenSea. So that kind of illustrates the, the point. How would you... So when you're minting something, it's, it's only tied to that currency, right? Like not to necessarily the marketplace. That's where you're minting or like. So when people think of a wallet, they think like this is, you know, piece of leather or this, <laughs> this kind of leather contraption that you have in your, in your pocket and this caching side, and then you put cash in and then you take cash out. And so, you know, when, when we use those words, we tend to think of like an NFT is stored in your wallet, right? That's kind of the, the metaphor that, that we conjure up in our minds, but that's actually not the case. Your wallet does not actually store the NFT. Your wallet is merely a way to interact with the blockchain and the blockchain stores the NFT or contains the NFT. And then when we talk about things like I you know, transferred this NFT or I sold this NFT to you, you know, we have this image in our minds of, you know, us sort of handing this NFT from our wallet and passing it to someone else and they put it in their wallet, right? But that's actually not what, what's not, that, that's not actually happening. Um, all that happens is, uh, you know, a, a single sort of entry in a, on the blockchain was made and that was it. Why I'm so focused on the on understanding the correct terminology is that it basically directly impacts how you behave and specifically it directly impacts how you may or may not lose your money, essentially. Because if you think of a wallet, most people think of protecting their wallet, right? But in the crypto space, protecting your wallet doesn't do anything, essentially. The thing that, that people need to protect is their, is their seed phrase. But from what I've seen, because of these metaphors, right, most people don't think too much, most people new to the space don't put enough emphasis on security for their seed phrase, um, or private key and put a lot more emphasis on security for their wallet, which I feel is because of the metaphor that they've brought into the space. It'd almost be better to like call it a portfolio rather than a wallet maybe, right? Like The word wallet is not going away just because it's kind of <laughs> how everyone calls it. But I do think it actually contributes to a huge security issue for a lot of new users because um, because when they, when they see that this is their wallet, they think, well, I, I need to protect this thing. 
right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing I need to protect. But actually, no, like your wallet doesn't mean anything from a security perspective on the blockchain. It, it's kind of your seed phrase that you need to protect. And for, for new users specifically, I think it's very important to, to understand this, what, what, what actually is happening and what you need to actually protect in order yeah. to sort of protect your money. Yeah. I have quite a few questions about the wallet, but now maybe I'm thinking that I should also ask you a bit about the C phrase. Right. And yeah, can you just kind of tell me what is that and why is that more important and what, like what role it plays within the wallet? You have access to what you can cryptographically prove that you can access, right? And, and this is done using very complicated advanced cryptography. And how you prove that and how the cryptographic algorithms know that, you know, you own what you say you own is that you have what's called a seed phrase, which is a, a long string of text that you usually get when you set up a new wallet. And this allows you to prove to the blockchain that, you know, you own a particular token, a particular NFT, and, and, and that's what a, a seed phrase is. Now, if you lose this seed phrase, essentially it's kind of gg.com, right? Like you're, that's it. <laughs> you have no possible way to get ownership over the, whatever you owned prior. Like that's it. You've lost ownership basically in, uh, uh, from a, a blockchain perspective. And if someone stole that seed phrase or you leaked it and someone else has it, this is not like a bank account where, you know, you call the bank and say, hey, reset my password. All your things are gone like that. There is no resetting of the password. Your seed phrase is is the seed phrase for that for that particular address, that particular wallet. And if you lose it, that's it. You can't change it. And if someone else has it, they now have access to your account, no matter what you did. So they're kind of important concepts. Uh, why it's so important that you keep your seed phrase secure? By keeping it secure, what measures would that maybe include? The most basic thing that people can do is is to purchase a hardware wallet. So a hardware wallet is, is a method of, there's two kinds of wallets that are sort of available to, to people. There's, there's a hardware wallet and there's a, what people call a hot wallet. So when we talk about MetaMask, which is kind of the most popular Ethereum wallet, usually that's, most people refer to that as, 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 a, as a hot wallet because what you do is you, you download MetaMask from, um, from an app store, a web store, web app store, either Chrome or your favorite browser's app store. You install it and then MetaMask generates a seed phrase that you would then kind of store. But because that generation of the seed phrase happened on your computer, it's not as secure as if you generated a seed phrase from a hardware wallet. So hardware wallet, we're talking about things like Ledger, Cobalt, Trezor. So there's these hardware wallet companies where the seed phrase that they generate is more secure. Basically, it's, it's more difficult to crack. And so that's kind of the first level of, of security to, to move from sort of a software wallet to a, to a hardware wallet. Um, and then it becomes about how to store that seed phrase, right? And so things that people can do to store their seed phrase. I'm actually a believer that the, you know, the first level is a password manager, right? So we're talking about things like one password. So it's a password manager that you, that you use to store in you know, a regular passwords that you, know, you, can, you can use that to, to store uh, your seed phrase. Now, once you have enough money or capital that you need to go beyond that because if you store it on your password manager, if 
the password for your password manager leaks, then you know someone can access it. Then you move to things like where you break your seed phrase into um, multiple parts, right? And then you store one part in one particular you know bank vault, and you store another part in another particular bank vault. And so, in order to sort of construct the seed phrase, you need access not just to one point of failure, but you require multiple points of failure. So that's something that that people do once they have sort of more capital that they need to protect. I would say that they're probably the, the two most common forms of protecting the seed phrase. But yeah, that would be my uh, recommendation. So then you kind of would need like the hard and the soft, right? Because you still need MetaMask or some other kind of wallet to be able to purchase most of the time, right? For most of these marketplaces. So a hardware wallet can usually integrate with, with MetaMask, but why people, some people use a soft a hot wallet over a hardware wallet, because a hardware wallet is more secure, is that a hardware wallet takes like, is just more inconvenient, right? Because every time you execute a particular transaction, you've got to, you've got to like enter a lot of stuff on your, okay. on your, on your, on your transfer. Whereas if you, if you have a software wallet, you just click a button and then it's done. Right. Uh-huh. So especially in the world of NFTs, especially in the world of minting the, where speed is of the essence, um, a lot of people kind of just use a software wallet because of the speed that it gives them uh, and the convenience. Right. And, and so that's what people do. And what people do is that, they have a, a hot wallet uh, where they kind of make their daily transactions, but for their most valuable cryptocurrencies and their NFTs, they transfer it to a hardware wallet so that it's kind of stored there. So then they have the convenience of a, of a hot wallet where they can make sort of speedy, convenient transactions, but then they would store their more valuable um tokens and, and cryptocurrencies in a, in a hardware wallet. Why is it that MetaMask is like so popular over others? Is it just that it's kind of more compatible with like the different marketplaces or do you recommend any other hot wallets? Uh, just use MetaMask, I guess. Okay. <laughs> That's basically cool. the answer. Simple yeah. answer. <laughs> when I was looking into MetaMask, it, there was something about Binance Smart Chain. So is that something that's needed in order to activate that? Or what's kind of the relationship between those two? So Binance Smart Chain is is an EVM chain. So, so I, I like, let me make a metaphor for this. So, you know, in the early 80s, IBM came out with the IBM PC and it kind of revolutionized the, the PC world because it was kind of a modular component and it had DOS on it, yada, yada, yada. But it was hella expensive because it was it was made by IBM. So a bunch of other hardware manufacturers put out their own PCs that was cheaper than the IBM version, but used the similar components, could run the kind of same software. And they were known as PC compatible, right? So we're talking about things like Dell, Compaq, HP. And this is kind of the PC world um, as we know it today. We, we no longer call these things PC compatible. We just call them PCs now because we just dropped the compatible because I don't think IBM actually makes PCs anymore. And this is in effect what's actually happening in the, in the Ethereum world, right? So Ethereum is a very expensive chain right now in terms of transaction costs on there. And so there's a bunch of sort of Ethereum compatible in, in technical terms, we call them EVM, Ethereum Virtual Machine, Ethereum compatible blockchains, of which the Binance Smart Chain is probably the biggest one with the biggest market cap. And what that means is that you can access them in the same way using the same software, i.e. MetaMask, 
So the same wallet software and then the, using the same address, right? So if, you're, if you have an address on Ethereum, that exact address is valid with the same seed phrase on Binance Smart Chain as well, on Polygon as well. On, on all the other EVM chains, the same address is, is valid. And the main differentiator from a newbie's perspective is that they're all cheaper than using Ethereum. So I've noticed you need to sync your wallet a lot of times to be able to right, get access and use it on a particular like platform. So is there any risk within that process? Like, I mean, how open are you then if you're just kind of, if your wallet is synced to all these places? Or is it, again, I'm kind of attaching this connotation of wallet as in something that I need to protect, whereas really it, it might be okay? There's no risk to your wallet being hacked to syncing. Now, the, the risk is that when you sync your wallet to a particular site, you are giving the site your public details. So your, your wallet address you're giving them access to, possibly your IP address you're giving them access to. So I would say there, there is privacy risks to connecting to a particular site, but there are no cryptographic risks um, to connecting to a site using a wallet. I wanted to hear a little bit about Web3. I think I hear about Web3 a lot in just kind of all of the commentary and chats and everything. And maybe could you elaborate a little bit on maybe like the security and functionality of Web3 and like how you see this transition happening? And does it mean necessarily that we will abandon the other web versions? And how important is it to crypto or to NFT? How important is it to the, to the NFT space? What that essentially means is that it used to be that, you know, Facebook, Google, they basically struck a Faustian bargain with the users so that, you know, they would harvest data about their usage habits, their consumption habits. So that's how you would get Facebook recommending you things and then feeding you ads on Google, YouTube, all of that. So, you know, advertising was a big kind of driver of that. Basically, you were giving up privacy, personal information, consumption habits, all, all of that in return for a monetarily free service that, you know, they provided to you, whether it's Gmail or, or Google search or whatever. So in, in that sense, a lot of the, the data and also basically your identity was given over to these big corporations in return for services that were centralized. And, and Web 3.0 is about overturning that. So for example, you would have decentralized applications, uh, dApps, where, you know, not only for, for in terms of governance and um you basically, your, your information is not given over to a corporation that tries to make money off it. If you take the case of NFTs, again, a lot of the, the commerce there happens directly between creators and collectors or, or you know, end, end users, end buyers. Without, you know, for example, if you talk about art, you have middlemen that used to, you know, the, the role that used to be fulfilled by galleries, auction houses who would take commissions, for example. So yeah, it, it's basically trying to disintermediate all of that. And the theory, at least, is that that value will accrue entirely to the creators. Which would lead me to the next idea of, of like DAOs and these kind of, I guess, like community organizations being like the key to, to these. Because I mean, of course, right? things are powered by money in general. And so I think a lot of the times with Web3, this idea of being able to like directly connect people or like to not be stealing your personal information, all of these ideas, how is it that Web3 will be used that will avoid these issues? 
the two biggest hype terms right now is Web3 and DAOs, right? This is, this is what everyone's yeah. talking about, right? So in my personal view, DAOs is basically a marketing term for a co-op, right? Mm-hmm. A good old socialist co-op. <laughs> and it has the same advantages and disadvantages of a co-op. So a co-op has the advantage that if everything is great, everyone has more buy-in, everyone has more incentives, everyone is more aligned with the mission, with the goals. They're the advantages of a DAO and the advantages of a co-op. The disadvantages of a co-op is that there is a free rider problem. There is much greater politics in co-ops than in sort of traditional hierarchical organizations. And that... It just takes more bandwidth to align everyone's interests. And it takes much more effort to scale than it does a traditional organization. And so my personal view is that because of the way that cryptocurrencies sort of can directly impact sort of individual contribution, that it will take this concept of the, of the co-op much further than it, than it actually has currently. Um, but... I feel like a lot of the hype around DAOs is kind of like, is, is kind of overblown. Can you just break down like what that is and how it works? Like maybe in a more, and like a kind of, you know, newbie. Like what is a smart contract? Yeah. And like how that works and how do you, are all NFT exchanges basically a type of smart contract? I would say an, an NFT exchange is a combination of a s- smart contracts and other sort of web things that are running on top of smart contracts. So it's a combination. They all have smart contracts, but they have other stuff as well. So what is a smart contract? Mm-hmm. A smart contract is an autonomously running piece of software on a blockchain. So in simple terms, it's a piece of software. Now, what's the difference between a smart contract, which is a piece of software running on a blockchain and a piece of software running on an AWS server. The difference is that a smart contract is is software that's running autonomously without any human intervention, right? And so what this means is that nobody can shut it down, essentially. The SEC has, according to all reports, subpoenaed most of the major decentralized finance uh, projects such as Uniswap. But because of the nature of a smart contract, it is impossible for anyone to shut down Uniswap. It means that you can, everyone in Uniswap can, can disappear. The web servers can disappear, but that Uniswap smart contract will be there and can be used no matter what. <laughs> the only way that can get shut down is if the, the entire Ethereum blockchain gets shut down, right? Which given its decentralized nature, is almost impossible to do. And so the power of smart contracts is that it's pieces of software that cannot be censored. So a smart contract, though, is going to be behind every purchase that you make, correct? So an NFT is a smart contract. Namely, namely, it is the ERC-721 standard smart contract. Right, so it is a it is a smart contract that has been defined in the Ethereum sort of standards, right? It's been given a it's been given a a, a standard sort of description, standard name, the ERC seven twenty one. 
right? So, so every single NFT is a smart contract. There are several editions of that, right? Like there's the ERC-21, and then there is a couple others that, that are out there, right? What would be the difference between those? So the, the, on Ethereum, there are two major NFT standards. So there's the ERC-721, which is the oldest standard. Uh, it was the standard that came about because of CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties was the first ERC-721. And then there is a second newer, currently less popular standard of NFTs, which is the uh, ERC-1155 standard. It contains improvements to the ERC-721 standard, but so far it, it has not been as popular due to, I guess, just less people using it, essentially. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor is Rising.